that's the ultimate. You know, you're self-propelled, you're self-contained, you're paddling, you're, you're using a mode of transportation that's been around for thousands of years. It was the way that this continent was explored, and you're still doing it that way. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 86, Steve Paragas, Canoeing Deep Dive. Hello and welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Kurt Linville. Today, I have a returning guest to do a deep dive into canoeing. Now, a deep dive is what we do from time to time, where instead of just introducing you to the sport, we try to dive deeper into the details of the gear and the how-to tips and tricks, things that will help you to enjoy this sport all the more. So whether you're an avid canoeer or would just like to know more about it, this will be the show for you. Steve Paragas is our guest today. Steve moved to Ely, Minnesota way back 40 years ago, and he moved there as a limnologist working for the EPA and fell in love with the place, and Steve and his wife decided to call it their home. And since then, Steve opened Paragus Northwoods, and that is a canoeing outfitter in Ely, and Steve is your canoeing expert. Steve, welcome to the program. Good morning. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. You bet. It's fun to have you back on again. I really enjoyed the first show you did, and for the listeners, believe it or not, it was episode number two, so you have to go way back to find that one, but if you go to adventuresportspodcast.com, then that episode is still alive and well. You can also find it, of course, on Stitcher and iTunes, so if you want to hear a little bit more from Steve, then you might want to try episode number two, but today we're going to take it to the next level by going into a little bit more detail about canoeing. So Steve, take a moment and tell our guests about yourself. Reintroduce yourself to us so we know who we're talking to. Sure. Yeah, um, you were right about everything. Nancy and I, my wife and I, came out here in 1975 from New England. We are both um, uh, born and brought up in central Massachusetts, kind of in the well, Massachusetts is uh, is a busy state with a lot of population, but where we're from is kind of out in the central part of the state, which is kind of the Hicks, you know, the backwoods, the the mill town that I'm from is a narrow wilderness, a really what is a de facto wilderness area called the um, Quabbin Reservoir. So I grew up hiking around in this reservoir area, which is uh, thousands of acres and a beautiful lake that is uh, used for fishing, but not for canoeing. And I learned a lot about birds and nature and became interested in course, went to college to study that kind of stuff and ended up at the University of New Hampshire as a grad student in limnology, lake ecology. So along came the opportunity for me and uh, Nancy to come to Ely for the summer of 1975, do some um, research for the EPA on a project they called the Shagawa Lake Project. Um, uh, here and right in the middle of Ely is, is the lake, uh, Shagawa Lake, and it's uh, it's been polluted for years by the city, um, which was dumping 
not untreated sewage, but moderately treated sewage into this lake. And then it was going downstream, of course, from here to the Canadian border and on to the Rainy Lake watershed. So the EPA decided to do this beautiful big project to kind of clean it up and see why um, the pollution was happening. And my job, our job, Nancy and I, were assigned to find out what the feeding rates of the zooplankton in Shagawa Lake were. So we, it was a small piece of the puzzle, but it was an important one. And we spent two summers here in 1975 and 1976, which doesn't seem all that long ago to me, but I'm sure it will to some of your listeners. And uh, we fell in love with Ely. We took our first trip uh, two weeks into our first stay in 1975 to a little lake called Hegman Lake in the Boundary Waters Wilderness, where there are some pictographs, some Indian pictographs, a very easy portage into, into this um, particular entry point. And we fell in love with the Boundary Waters right away. It was, um, you know, that's it's a very dangerous wilderness. And it's not because it's got a lot of heavy white water or, uh, you know, steep cliffs to fall over or anything like that. The Boundary Waters is super user-friendly, but it's dangerous because you end up falling in love with it very quickly and you have to come back. <laughs> so we came, we came back in 1976. We worked here again. We decided at that point we would go back to New England and get married, which we did in the fall of 76. And then to live in Ely, we found different jobs in the scientific field as biologists uh, working on projects like uh, the first Minnesota copper nickel project to study the background uh, conditions of lakes and streams in Minnesota before there was any copper nickel mining, which had been proposed even back in the 70s. And uh, we uh, uh, worked as instructors, teachers at Vermilion Community College for a couple of years. And uh, after finishing up that stint, we found ourselves out of work in a little town with a little house and um, in love with uh, Boundary Waters and wanting to stay. So we opened our business, which we call Paragus Northwoods Company, 1979, 36 years ago. And uh, at this point in time, anyway, and... Uh, we still uh, we still run that. It's grown significantly over the years. So now we we have about uh, oh I don't know nineteen full time employees and fifty people work for us in the summer. And we contribute significantly to the local economy with our payroll, and we consider ourselves a pretty good um, contributor to the community over all those years. And, um, continue to work on community fairs and as well as, uh, you know, promoting our sport, which is wilderness canoeing. You know, Steve, I've looked through your website several times and I need to tell the listeners, this is one of those websites where you can dig pretty deep. There are a lot of blogs and a lot of layers to it. And the, the deeper you dig, the more you find it's full of all sorts of little treasures. So you have a, an active online business as well as your canoe outfitting business right there. And it's pretty neat. No, oh, thank you so much. Yeah, we we've developed that. We started in '94 with our first website, so we we were on the web pretty early on. Um, you know, it's a it's a changing technology and a changing um, you know way of marketing. So we're always trying to update that, keep with it. Um, but you know, the, the source of our income, I think, is making friends with our customers, and we are always your your friends in the great North Woods, and we consider that to be our major goal is to 
make people uh, or make our customers feel comfortable calling us anytime. When we answer the phone ourselves, I answer the phone, my wife answers the phone, all of our staff do. We don't have a recording on. You know, we answer the phone, unless it's after hours, of course. <laughs> and, and our website's open all the time. So, um, you know, in, in the changing world of, of retail marketing, we're, uh, we try to stay even with uh, what's going on, but also to, to be old-fashioned and, uh, and talk to people. Um, you know, we don't actually consider ourselves experts. We're, all, we're always learning as well. We learn from our customers, I think. And, uh, we, uh, we're, you know, we've, we want to know what they want us to sell, what they want us to know, be knowledgeable about. And we do the best to do that. All, everybody who works for us, uh, Curtis, they're all... Uh, very dedicated, and they are long-lasting. Uh, they have a they have a, a long lifespan here at Paragus Northwoods. Um, we've had a few people who worked for us more than thirty years. Um, we have most of our staff have been here at least ten years, and they enjoy working here. Obviously, so um, it's a family kind of business. Wow, you know that is impressive. Um, most businesses these days have a much higher turnover rate, and to be frank, I think it's because the uh, the business owners are trying to get maximum productivity for least amount of expenditure, and that sets up a dynamic. Sometimes it's adversarial, but it sounds like you're really taking care of your people. That's awesome. That we do. That we do. That's a you know, especially here at the end of the road in a small town, we don't have a resource to just go out and hire more people right away. So we hold on to the ones we have, and well, we, um, we, you know, they they hold on to us too, which I think is important. That brings a level of expertise that you're not going to find in most companies. And so speaking of expertise, let's talk about canoeing. One of my favorite subjects. Oh, yeah. The uh, Paragus Northwoods is a canoeing outfitter. And so people can come there and you get them completely set up with everything that they need for uh, short or extended trips into the Boundary Waters. And you've been paddling there now, like we said, for 40 years. So I'll bet you have a few things that you can teach us about canoeing. Huh. Well, where do you where do we start? Yeah, no kidding. Uh, wilderness canoeing is really one of those things that, um, at least here in the Boundary Waters, that most people feel comfortable doing after only a few hours of experience. But uh, more more experience leads to more fun, I think, and um, more uh, you know efficiency and energy at the end of the day. So, yeah, here, uh, we're not. Uh, whitewater paddlers. We're flatwater paddlers. We do a lot of portaging, which is, uh, uh, you know, really the hard part. On a canoe trip, when you don't have to port portage, you can bring just about anything that'll fit in the canoe that you want to take. You know, the kitchen sink is not a not out of the of possibility. But uh, when you go on a canoe trip in the Boundary Waters, portaging is important. So, you know, number one on my list is to pack light, to, to use the lightest possible uh, equipment that you. And so that you're comfortable, uh, maybe take a couple of luxury items because you can, but uh, use the equipment that uh, we that we rent, that we sell, uh, that we think is the best, that keeps your pack and your canoe as light as possible. So <clears throat> number one is lightweight canoes. Um, you know, we, we started specializing in Kevlar canoes back in the early 1980s before I think anybody else had figured that out. So 40-pound canoes are... Essential nowadays uh, here in the Boundary Waters. You see way more Kevlar around now than you did in 1990 or 1980, and it's uh, it's the kind of 
Yeah, that makes makes the trip for a lot of people. A 75-pound aluminum canoe is out and a 40-pound Kevlar canoe is in. And if they could get lighter, I would use them. You know, the lighter, the better. So the different uh, sizes of canoes, too. Um, mm-hmm. What size do you recommend for the boundary waters? I guess it depends on how many people you want in the boat, right? Well, yeah, and you know the regular, uh, the average trip is two people in the canoe. Sometimes there's three, but in a tandem canoe, um, the the lengths here are a little bit longer than what some people might be used to in the east, for instance, where more more river canoeing is done. So they're about seventeen to eighteen and a half feet long. An eighteen and a half foot canoe is a little more efficient than a sixteen foot canoe because it's got a longer keel line, it's got a faster hull speed, and uh, it's just more efficient. Um, you know, and then for three people, we, we use a 20 foot long canoe with three seats and we even now have a 23 foot canoe, which, uh, gets a little bulky and long on portages, but four people can use it, you know, even a family of five and one canoe. So, uh, yeah, the, you know, the sky's the limit almost. And, uh, but weight is the most, is the key getting it as light as possible. 17 foot canoe weighs about 42 pounds and 18 and a half foot canoe weighs about 43 pounds. So it doesn't make that much difference. I suppose we could have a, a 14 foot canoe that weighed 35 pounds, but when you get the shorter you get, the harder you're paddling just to get from, you know, from one lake to the next. So a reasonable length is 17 to 18 and a half. And then, you know, we, uh, one of the other things that I think makes makes a huge difference is the pa- are the paddles, and people uh, sometimes I think ignore that. But uh, I th- I'm not sure, but we probably are one of the few uh, outfitters that rents and and uh, uses uh, carbon fiber paddles. So a carbon fiber paddle that might weigh 14 ounces is about half the weight of wooden paddle. It's uh, very durable. And when you're paddling a thousand strokes to go a mile, you know, into the wind, especially on a lake that's, uh, can be a little bit bumpy, the lighter the paddle, um, the better. And you don't feel really, you don't feel the weight of the canoe in the water. You feel the weight of the canoe on your shoulders on the portage, but you feel the weight of the paddle every time you take a stroke. The light paddles, when bench shaft paddles is what, are what we use. Uh, there are 14 degree bench shaft paddles, the flat water paddles that are uh, recommended and then started out being used in, in, uh, racing, uh, USCA, uh, racing canoes, but now is, uh, it's kind of the standard for flat water canoeing. So canoes and paddles, lightweight, Kevlar, carbon fiber. That's, that's where it's at for us. So. Length allows you to go a little bit faster because your haul speed increases. And I was just explaining this to my daughter this week, which is kind of fun. But what happens with any sort of a a vessel that has a draft is that there is a bow wave. And the length of that bow wave is determined by the length of the water line. And the speed uh, that that wave can travel through water is determined by that length. So there's actually a law of physics that limits the top speed of a canoe, no matter how hard you paddle. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also expect a longer canoe at slower speeds would be more efficient too, just a little bit easier to push through the water. So you get more weight, but maybe a little bit more automatic speed. Am I right about that, or am I guessing there? No, that's true. Um, yeah, not many people paddle at hull speed. You know, racers do, and they get what they call planing. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, most recreational paddlers would never do that unless they're in the race to get to the portage first, you know. <laughs> but, but, um, longer, 
longer boats spread out that um, you know, the weight of that's in the canoe over a larger surface area uh, makes it a little bit easier to paddle. And, um, you know, what you're talking about, this bow wave situation is, is you know, that's, it's, it's a, a marine engineer will explain the same thing for a battleship. You know, it doesn't matter what the hull is. Uh, it can be 600 feet long or it can be 16 feet long. That's important. And, you know, you see uh, the fastest ships on the ocean are very sleek in the bow that doesn't push a lot of bow wake and uh, long and somewhat uh, narrow and a rounded hull on the bottom of a canoe makes it a little bit easier to paddle than a flat-bottomed hull. So there's a little, you know, you have to balance all that, of course, with with um, the feeling of stability. Stability in a canoe is really in the uh, is in the perception of the user. Um, some people feel stable in very narrow pro boat, what's called a pro boat, a pro racing canoe, very narrow, 27 inches at the at the waterline, the three inch waterline. Um, but you know, if you're if you have that feeling of stability, then you are stable. And if you don't have that feeling of stability, you're likely to, you know, you're more likely to actually capsize because your center of gravity tends to gravitate upwards as you get nervous and feel unstable. So, you know, it's that relaxation uh, that makes a canoe and the canoeist feel comfortable. And if you want to, if you don't feel comfortable in a narrow, super fast canoe, then you shouldn't be paddling that kind of canoe. So we don't really use those kinds of canoes in rental. We don't recommend them to wilderness paddlers, but some people do. And uh, all of our uh, rental boats, all of our, everything we sell from Winona and Bell are uh, relatively stable canoes. Some are more flat bottom than others. They give you that initial feeling of stability. The 17-foot Spirit II from Winona, somewhat flat bottom boat, a little tiny bit of rocker from end to end. Most people, no matter how familiar they are with canoeing, feel very stable. Other people want to go um, maybe a canoe that's more efficient, like the 18-and-a-half-foot Minnesota 2. My wife and I have been using that model for years. We feel very comfortable in rough water, and uh, we've got a lot of experience with dogs in our boat, with three packs in our boat, and it feels great. So uh, that's what we use. But... um, you know, the the differences aren't huge either. So, you know, most people are going to feel okay in just any of the canoes that we would recommend to them. But if you, you know, if bigger people, larger people, more weight, more upper body, you know, men tend to have much more upper body weight than women do. Women are, are more balanced structurally, <laughs> top to bottom. So, uh, you know, a couple big guys that are muscular and heavy on top, they, they, they actually might feel more comfortable in a flatter bottom, slightly less efficient canoe. Hmm, interesting. You know, my family canoes a little bit. Some wonderful neighbors of ours had a broken down canoe in their yard and said, hey, if you want to fix that up, then you can you can just hang on to it. And so my sons and I went to work rebuilding this canoe. Now, this is not one of your nice um, Kevlar canoes. It's more of the heavy plastic affordable versions, super affordable versions. But I guess the reason I bring it up is that we love to take that out on some of the lakes here in Colorado, and canoeing is just such a delight. But something I noticed, I have four kids, Steve, and when they were smaller, they would all get in the canoe with me, and we'd have a a blast. And then a couple years later, we all got in the canoe, and 
we're pretty sure we're not going to make it across the water without flipping <laughs> because the kids got bigger mm-hmm. and everything got heavier. And it's kind of the dynamic you're talking about. It seemed like the canoe just got um, pretty unstable. Let's talk car racks, specifically Yakima and Thule. Chances are, if you're listening to our show, you either have one, want one, or you're going to need a car rack soon. Car racks, whether on the roof or on the back, need a good set of locks to keep your gear locked down to the rack and to your car. Good news. Our new sponsor, Z-Lock, has new lock sets for all Thule and Yakima racks at about one-third less than anywhere else. These lock cores are sourced from the original manufacturer and include bonus keys. Need replacement keys or cores matched to your current lock code? Z-Lock has replacement options even if you've lost all of your keys and don't know your key number. Check this out. Z-Lock is offering Adventure Sports Podcast listeners an additional 20% off their already low prices plus free shipping. Just enter the code ADVENTURE at checkout and you'll save up to 50% off a retail. Go to zlock.com forward slash adventure. That's Z-E-L-O-C-K dot com forward slash adventure and save. Hey friends, don't miss out on the family fun that is the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness this summer. Paragus Northwoods Company, located at the edge of the wilderness in Ellie, Minnesota, is a leading supplier of fun for families and friends in the Boundary Waters Wilderness. Paragus supplies the canoes and the camping gear that makes a wilderness adventure so easy and so enjoyable. Find them online at paragus.com. That's P-I-R-A-G-I-S dot com. Or pick up the phone and talk to their outfitting department at one 800 That's true. Sure. You know, um, families grow up and, and the canoes they paddle change over the years. That's happened to us lots of times. You know, uh, we only, we have only one child, a daughter who's now fully grown, 25 years old. And, uh, over those, and we have two dogs. So when Ellie was a little kid, we would take all of us 18 and a half foot Minnesota too. And we were fine. And we, we quickly evolved out of that situation to two canoes, so we felt more comfortable, I guess, with two canoes as Ellie got older, and uh, and the dogs uh, never changed. They they were fully grown the whole time. We still have them. We still have a 16-year-old bearded collie and a 14-year-old bearded collie, and they're good dogs. They'll sit still in the canoe. Mostly they lay in the canoe, and they lay on one side of the canoe, of course, so 
you know, I'm always leaning on the other side, but <laughs> you know, that's, that's, you know, what are you going to do? Once they lay down, it's hard to move them. And, uh, but it's better than having them stand on a thwart or something. So, you know, that's an issue with, with animals in the canoe. Some of them are rambunctious and some aren't, fortunately. So families grow. People, um, people change their, their size changes also and canoes have to change with them. And, you know, that's why Winona and Bell, uh, our two canoes companies that we represent make a variety of models with different sizes and different size families and from 24, 23 foot long Minnesota four and the 20 foot, uh, North shore that Bell makes the 20 foot Minnesota three that uh, Winona makes down to, you know, a 14 foot fisherman, which is, uh, a delightful little canoe. Doesn't paddle very fast, but you know, it's, uh, something like 40 inches wide and you can stand up and fish in it all. Some people, and I don't know if I could, but, uh, you know, and it only weighs 36 pounds. So if you want to go fishing in a little lake back in the woods, you can pick this thing up and crash through the brush if you have to, if it's can or anyway. And, uh, you know, paddle it solo, paddle it tandem, and that's, you're not going too far. You're just fishing this little, this little lake, and uh, it's perfect for that use. So how do you know when you actually have too much weight in a boat? As you start to put gear in and people in and pets in, at some point, you're crossing a threshold. Mm-hmm. It's hard to cross that threshold, though. I'll tell you, you have to have very dense stuff in order to cross that threshold. Some canoe companies list uh, maximum capacity. Um, and at least they did, but uh, Winona and Bell never did because it's it's uh, it's somewhat arbitrary. They, uh, one measurement is the weight that the canoe will take to reach the six-inch waterline. In other words, how much weight can you put in this boat until it sinks down into the water and there's only six inches left? So when you get past the tumble home on the side, you know, when you've reached the point where you, you're at only a few inches of freeboard left, it gets super tippy and very dangerous. So, But in a Minnesota 2 that we use, I mean, 600 pounds wouldn't be un, unheard of, maybe even, maybe more, maybe 900 pounds. I, it's it's a, more than you would ever want to take. Yeah, I was going to say, that's no fun in a portage. No, no. <laughs> no, you got a 40-pound canoe and you've got 600 pounds of stuff. Well, you know, what's the point? So, so I mean, Nancy and I don't probably weigh together uh, 300 and 320 pounds or something and you know the dogs are only 50 pounds each so what is that 420 yeah we you know between all of us in the packs we might have 500 pounds of gear i guess but but it's easy it's pretty easy to carry yourself it's that 50 pound food pack that's the hard one to get up and carry across supported so we try to limit everything that we take to make it easier and i assume it really helps to have the heaviest stuff in the middle and down low in the boat is that right well, down low is very is very important because, you know, when the wind comes up and the waves start to hit you sideways and the center of gravity as low as possible is important in any canoe. Uh, you know, sometimes seats are mounted too high and that makes you feel unstable and you can lower the seats and make it feel better. Um, but putting the weight that's adjustable down low is really important. You know, sometimes you're, you know, you're paddling across a big bay of, a lake in the Quetico or the Boundary Waters, and the wind picks up, and all of a sudden there's a chop coming at your side, and it gets a little rocky, and it's kind of hard to tip the packs over on their back when you're in the middle of the lake. So do that before you go out, and before you hit, you know, hit the water, put the packs down as low as possible, 
put yourself down as low as possible. If you don't, if you have a canoe that needs to be adjusted, it's easy. In most cases, it's easy to adjust the seat height, you know, by moving the the brackets that hold the seat. Um, but uh, the weight has got to be distributed evenly from end to end. You don't want a canoe that's bow heavy. I mean, I we've all experienced this. I'm sure anybody who's paddled. If you put the heavy person in the front and the light person in the back, it just doesn't go straight. It wants to take, the canoe will want to turn in one direction or the other and not stop. It wants to carve a turn like the front of a ski with weight on the inside edge. So uh, you'd want to have it balanced, trimmed um, from front to back so that it's almost level or just a little bit stern heavy. So... Uh, with a uh, wonderfully fit and beautiful wife like I have, I sit in the back. <laughs> <She's> <laughs> and uh, she also has a, a sliding bow seat in the front. Most um, as technically um, sophisticated canoes these days have sliding bow seats so the person in the, in the front, in the bow of the canoe, can adjust their weight front to back a little bit to make the mm. canoe trim them. That's a good idea. Yeah, so you could, you know... Um, maybe you can even add that to that old beater plastic canoe you got from your neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you bet. Well, here's a question for you. Um, my family visited Table Rock Lake in uh, southern Missouri, northern Arkansas, and we uh, we rented a couple of canoes to play around on the lake. And so we went across this little bay and into a, a cove that was kind of fun, and we had two canoes, like I said. Well, the wind kicked up. And as we were coming back out again, I've done quite a bit of canoeing, and so I could I could hold the canoe straight the direction we wanted to go in the wind. But my wife, with almost no weight in the front because our kids were so small, she just could not keep her canoe going in a straight line because there's too much weight in the back, and the wind was just ferocious. So it, it turned into a real chore for us to get the canoes back. In the end, I roped up the bow of her canoe to the stern of mine so I could help keep hers in line. But I'm telling you, it was not efficient. So when the wind does that to you, Steve, what are you supposed to do? What's hmm. what's the way to handle that? Well, you you need to adjust the weight. I mean, there's just no there's no two ways about it. You got you know I I paddle my eighteen and a half foot canoe solo, and I sit in the stern, and I just put weight in the front. So you can add weight to the front of the canoe. At least in most places, it's not too hard to find a rock to sit in the front of the canoe. Now that has its own um, disadvantage. If you do tip over and the rock's stuck in your canoe, it's going to sink your, the front end of your canoe. So, you know, you don't want to make sure it falls out if you happen to tip over. But I put, um, uh, you know, I, ha- I tend to get up early in the morning on canoe trips. We're at camp. It's a beautiful morning. The fog is on the lake. So I go down to the lake and I put about four big rocks in the front of my Minnesota tube very gently. I don't want to drop them through the boat or anything, but and I sit in the stern, and, and I can paddle uh, from the stern of my Minnesota 2, 18 and a half feet long, just as well by myself as I can with two people in the boat. I, our paddling technique is such that we switch sides. We don't do a lot of adjusting, uh, um, you know, strokes like J strokes and C strokes. We just don't do that because it's slightly inefficient. So when Nancy and I are together, um, I call in Minnesota, it's called, it's called a hut. Uh, Minnesota Canoe Association, the magazine name is Hut, and Hut means switch sides. So I'm paddling on the right, Nancy's on the left, 
the boat starts to turn slightly to the to the left because I have more fo- force on my side of the boat in the stern where I'm paddling, and I call hut, and we switch sides, and then the boat zigzags back to the right a little bit. So and and then you know the the alternative is to do a, a J stroke or uh, an adjusting stroke in the stern. Every time you do that, you really lose efficiency because your your force is going into pushing the side of the, the canoe sideways. And if you can put all of your energy into making it going forward, it's obviously more efficient. But I can do that paddling solo as long as I've got weight in the front. So I'll switch every four or five six strokes while I'm paddling by myself from the stern. Now, other people feel more comfortable if they go out solo, not using the rock technique that I use, but they sit or kneel just behind the center of the canoe in a tandem canoe. You can lean it on its side. It's kind of like the Canadian style of paddling where you take a bigger tandem canoe, turn it on its side a little bit, and and it's easier to paddle. It's more like a solo canoe. So there's lots of techniques, and they all work. You know, for me, it's just in a long, straight tracking canoe like I use. It's easier for me to put weight in the front. So in your situation, what I'm saying after all of this long explanation is you should have put some rocks in the front of her canoe. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good idea. Next time I'll know what to do. With the front end out of the water, the wind just whips it around, and you end up going downwind. And, you know, that's not the way you want to go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So in high winds, you got to get the weight toward the front to kind of balance things out a little bit. You got to get a level, level, okay. not n- never bow heavy, but always, always close as close to level as you can get it. The, st- the stems of the canoe in modern day canoes, they don't have keels, so the keel of the canoe, what keeps it going straight, is the is the stem, the front and the back. They are what uh, direct the canoe to go straight. The more rocker in a canoe the less straight it'll go because the stems are not in the water all the time. So, But a canoe with no rocker, and by rocker I mean you set the canoe on a flat um, plane on a cement floor and does it does it uh, teeter-totter from end to end as you push down on the front and the back. If it doesn't do that, it's got a very straight keel line and it's designed to go straight. And, you know, those, those ends of the boat stay in the water. The stems keep it going straight. And a canoe that's on, used on a river that you want to turn more quickly because you've got to maneuver your way around rocks and and the rapids, those canoes have rocker, and they don't go very straight on lakes, but they are, they are much more efficient in whitewater on rivers so you, so you can turn them, you know, so you can maneuver yourself across the river and not hit rocks and avoid, you know, the dangers of the, of the rapids. But up here, um, we're canoeing in, in, on wilderness lakes. We like to go straight and efficient. So here in Colorado, there are a few diehards that still do whitewater canoeing, and they have a, a shorter canoe with a lot of rocker, and they fill up the open part of the canoe with airbags. And with that type of an arrangement, they can actually do an Eskimo roll in their canoe. Well, they're good. They yeah, can do that. That's they're sure. good. That's pretty extreme. There aren't a lot of the diehards left because it takes a lot of muscle and a lot of skill to manage that. But I have a lot of respect for them. It's impressive to see these guys in, in the white water. Well, Kurt, you know, people are uh, up in the north, um, across northern Canada. A lot of people every summer are doing long canoe trips on big rivers with white water. And they've got loads in their boat, you know, because they're out for five weeks sometimes or more. So uh, 
Whitewater isn't limited to just play boats. What you're talking about is people who are playing in rapids. They're, they're, they're not taking gear with them. They're taking airbags. But if you go up to northern Manitoba or Saskatchewan or into, um, you know, the Arctic, lots of people, wilderness canoeing, are, are, are doing these uh, trips. And they're taking canoes that have a, they're big canoes with lots of volume, a little bit of rocker because you've got to maneuver. And maneuvering a canoe that's full of weight is much more difficult than one that's full of airbags. So it's uh, you know it's it's a compromise, but you have to do it if you're going to be on, you know, the uh, somewhere in the watershed of the Mackenzie River, for instance, flowing into the Arctic Ocean, and you're off on a long trip with gear. You know that you have to be very very careful in those cold waters with big rapids. And but you still have to be able to maneuver the canoe like your friends in Colorado do with the airbags, and just a lot harder to do. Mm, yeah, that's that's tough. <laughs> that's got to be yeah. tough, no you doubt. You got to be very it. careful. You know, scout every rapid and line line the rapids. Take it. The, you know, nobody ever drowned on a portage, so you know that's <laughs> uh, that's that's uh, you know keep your keep yourself alive. Number one. And uh, if you're going to have some fun in the rapids, maybe carry the packs and uh, and just paddle the canoe through the rapids. Uh, when, it, when, it, when you're on a big whitewater river in the north, the water is way too cold to fool around. So you got to make sure you know what you're doing. Yeah, no doubt. This episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast is brought to you by 180TAC.com. 180TAC manufactures premier backpacking and emergency products. Whether you need a backpacking stove for your week-long trek on the trail or an emergency stove for your bug-out bag, we have the tools you need. Visit www.180tack.com. If you're thinking about your future, think about Fort Lewis College in Durango, Colorado. Think a beautiful mountain campus where hiking, biking, kayaking, and snow riding are right outside your door. Think a friendly community buzzing with music, arts, events, and sports. Think faculty mentors, real research, and professional experiences that prepare you to both make a living and make a life. If you think college should be an adventure, think Fort Lewis College. See for yourself at fortlewis.edu. But I have a suspicion that those aren't the conditions people usually see at Boundary Waters. None of that exists here, as far as I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are, actually, we you know there are dangers in rapids here, but usually, what happens here, people get into trouble on the rapids because they miss the portage somehow. You know, the portage is on the right side of, of the of a, a river, and they're approaching the portage, and they don't see it; they're on the wrong side, and they get swept over a rapid over a waterfall and that's happened a few times you gotta you know you have to watch the map know where you come where you are watch the surface you know you can see water moving 
as you get to the narrow end of the lake and it's starting to flow out, you can see the water moving. You better start finding that portage right away because it's, uh, you know, you, especially in spring and fall when the water's cold, you don't want to be swimming and, uh, and you don't want to be picking your gear out of the bottom of the rapids someplace and not having it, not, not finding it all. So, so there's, you know, I mean, I always say the big danger here is falling in love with it now and never being able to leave it and always wanting to come back. But really, there are situations, even in the boundary waters, where you can have trouble with rapids. So they exist. They're just not, they're not play rapids like you have long stretches of rapids in, uh, in the mountains or, you know, um, in places like, uh, uh, you know, wherever. Out east, there's lots of whitewater canoeing. But here, uh, most of the time, you take the portages and you do it carefully. Oh, sure. So I'm going to ask the obvious question, and maybe we should have started with this one. But the obvious question is, why canoe in the first place? What do you get out of this sport? (laughs) Well, that's a great question. Thank you for asking. (laughs) Oh, well, so much, so much. This great feeling of being self-propelled. That's what I think about. You know, um, you can uh, be out there with a motorboat, but but the folks in the motorboats aren't getting the satisfaction that you are. In fact, it's, it's usually more fun if the motorboats are not there, in my opinion. You know, if you're on a, a wilderness lake like the Boundary Waters where there are no motorboats, that's the ultimate. You know, you're self-propelled, you're self-contained, you're paddling, you're, you're using a motor transportation that's been around for thousands of years. It was the way that this continent was explored, and you're still doing it that way. And you're getting great exercise. Um, you, you're um, you're uh, experiencing nature in a way that you can't any other way i always say that you know paddling along the shoreline is the most fun of all you know paddlers some some people are uh goal oriented <laughs> they, they want to get to the end of the lake as fast as they can to get to the next portage to get to the next lake whatever in my opinion it's much more fun to paddle the shoreline and see what's going on in the in nature and you're very quiet in a canoe paddling the shorelines you see much more than you would um, you know, uh, walking through the woods for sure. You know, you see bears once in a while pop out of the woods. Do you hear, um, otters, otters are, uh, uh, you know, fairly common here and the wonderful, uh, intelligent animal of the you know, aquatic and terrestrial environment. So you see much more in a canoe than you would walking. That's for sure. I mean, on a portage, you got your head down and you're trying to get to the other end because you've got a canoe on your shoulders and a pack or sometimes uh, you know a heavy pack so you see a lot paddling the shoreline i stay as close to the shore as i can you know you gotta miss the rocks you don't want to run aground but you really uh have a much greater chance of seeing wildlife if you're in a canoe and it's just that satisfaction i think you know it's like the satisfaction of backpacking in the wilderness You've done it yourself. No, you know you didn't uh, use any hydrocarbons to get up to the top of the mountain, and you didn't you didn't use any hydrocarbons. You used all of your own energy to get from uh, Lake, to uh, say uh, Basswood Lake, to uh, to uh, Crooked Lake, beautiful part of the Boundary Waters on the Canadian border, and uh, it just feels good. It just feels good. You know, it does. There's just something so special about being on the water and. And slipping through nature like that. Well, friends, this concludes part one of the two-part show by Steve Paragus. 
Join us again on Monday to hear the second half, where Steve will explore a lot more about the details on how to richly enjoy canoeing in the wilderness, especially in the Boundary Waters. And Steve also shares some special information about protecting the Boundary Waters from a very real threat that we want all of you to be aware of. I look forward to sharing more with you on Monday, and until then, get out there this weekend and have some fun. big money and transform your home with new appliances now at menards we offer the lowest prices and the largest in-stock appliance selection ready to take home today check out top appliance brands including KitchenAid, maytag whirlpool amana and criterion upgrade your home and save big money on new appliances at menards shop our entire selection of appliance options online today at menards.com save big money at when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.